Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. I'm so excited about the perspective today's guest has to bring to our series on freedom of speech, Dr. Scott Atlas, the Robert Wesson Senior Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Before his appointment at Hoover, he was Professor and Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center for 14 years. He specializes in health policy and has served as Senior Advisor for Healthcare to numerous presidential candidates. He's also counseled members of U.S. Congress on Healthcare, testified before Congress, and briefed directors of federal agencies. Most importantly for this conversation, from July to December of 2020, he served as a special advisor to the president and a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Among his more recent projects is the Global Liberty Institute, a multinational organization which is meant to help foster individual liberty and economic freedom. Working in healthcare policy and having advised the president right at the outset of the pandemic, Dr. Atlas has certainly been at the cutting edge of debate and free speech issues in the medical sphere. So in this conversation, we're going to not only discuss the importance of free speech when we're talking about science and scientific questions, but also the implications for free speech broadly. And there's definitely no one whose personal experiences can be more helpful for understanding this and why this is important than Dr. Atlas. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Dr. Atlas, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Well, happy to be here. Thank you. So one of the reasons uh, I've been so excited about having you as part of this series on free speech is there's all kinds of people who, you know, they start their career, they're lawyers, they're interested in the Constitution, and they kind of intend for this to be their main thing. But you are a medical doctor. You come from a totally different field, and this has become one of your major issues. So kind of to kick us off here, um, I'm wondering if you could talk to our audience a little bit, both kind of about yourself, about why this topic became such a major focus for you, and then also kind of give us an overview of why this topic is so important in the medical sciences right now. Sure. So I... uh work on healthcare policy after about 25 years of a career in academic clinical research and teaching academic medicine. And uh, in healthcare policy, uh, there's been a lot of disinformation or, I mean, I don't, I don't like that word, but the, <laughs> there's been a lot of very strident opinions about things without any basis of fact. And this predated the pandemic that yeah. we just experienced including things like single-payer health care, where I guess in every every issue, uh, lots of opinions and a very little factual basis or even knowledge. And sort of what I try to teach my students is the way it's supposed to work is you read the information, you then think about the information, and then you form your opinion. It doesn't work well going the opposite direction. Right. So um, then the pandemic came up, and I had been working in healthcare policy for about a decade full-time, not in medicine at all. But healthcare policy means integrating medical science uh, with economics and uh, other issues that are ultimately very impactful on a lot of things, including on directly on health. And so I was working on a book on healthcare reform in the healthcare system in early 2020. And then the pandemic information started coming out of China. And it was very frightening because there was all kinds of uh, really grossly erroneous statements made about the the death rate, the infection fatality rate. And this was very, very high. And if you knew anything about medical science, you understood right away it was wrong because it's a fraction and they were not putting in the bottom of the fraction the number of people that were were infected. Instead, they were only counting the people who were sick enough to seek medical attention, which would therefore, by definition, markedly elevate the infection fatality rate or the, the death rate, basically. So I got involved and was speaking out about not just what the data was, including the data on this pandemic, uh, the early data from the cruise ship, et cetera, 
but on things like the extraordinarily low risk for serious illness for healthy children, uh, and even the fundamental biological known information about viral respiratory infections, including that lockdowns do not work and that lockdowns are extraordinarily harmful. We knew that for decades, uh, but somehow fact was denied, mm -hmm. science was denied, it became uh, really out of control. And so I started doing research on the pandemic and writing and speaking out. And that's a long lead in to how that ties into the censorship issue and free speech. Because first of all, you cannot have science without free speech. You cannot, science is defined by the debate about the data, hypotheses that are proven or disproven, and that's how you organize and ultimately end up with what truth is. That's what science is. But particularly in this uh, situation, we had a healthcare emergency. We had the, the biggest healthcare crisis in a century. Uh, and there, there was a tremendous amount of fear, and that's understandable. But with the way to allay fear is to provide data, provide information. And that's how you also tell the people when you're in a leadership position that you know what you're doing because you're eject, showing that you know the data, you're trying to understand the data, and you're transmitting the data. You don't persuade with fear, et cetera. And so um, what, what happened was after several months of working on this pandemic research, I was called up by the president, by the White House in July of 2020, six, seven months after the people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx were in charge of the pandemic response on the federal level. And I was called up by the White House and said, would I come in and speak to the president? Which of course, I'm an American, people are dying, the answer should be obvious. And so I said, well, of course I would. And I went in and ultimately after spending a day there talking to people, they asked me if I would help advise the president. And so I said, well, of course, but, uh, you're, you're going to get somebody who uh, is going to tell the truth no matter what, even if I disagree with what anybody else here in the White House wants me to say, not going to sign on the people just because they tell me to or statements they make or approve statements, et cetera. And they said, that's great. That's why they want me. And so I was happy with that. And then uh, the next statement uh, that I heard from Jared Kushner at the time was, but they're going to destroy you when it becomes public. Yeah. That you're advising the president. And this sort of, you know, that's a shock. I'm not political. I was sort of naive. Uh, I'm, I'm an academic and I wasn't really, you know, very familiar with the world of Washington. And so I said, well, oh, that doesn't sound so good. Maybe I'll try this from home. So I went back to California to Stanford and um, it wasn't working. Uh, because things are being decided real time. And the president's being given grossly wrong information by people who are grossly incompetent, specifically Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, and the media. And so I went back. And what happened then was there was a massive uh, attack on me. And uh, that attack in the media and by people who didn't know what they were talking about, particularly at Stanford University, including in the medical center, uh, but elsewhere too, the attack was was sort of uh, it, it, you know engineered on the basis of an attack with a lot of you know non-data-based statements and ad hominem things, but also it was done with the help of the media with censorship. Now, what this is what happened, really, if I can go on. What happened, yeah, why would the public believe? Why would the public believe in things that didn't make sense? Common sense told you, okay, we don't shut down the entire society when we know that the people at risk are older and very sickly people. That was already proven. Uh, and young, healthy people had minuscule risk for serious illness, illness or death. And uh, why would people believe that you should close schools and destroy children? Uh, and in fact, in the United States, we did that, even though our peer nations in Europe did not do that, even though they had severe lockdowns. Right. But uh, why was that? Why was that sort of accepted by the public? And it was accepted partly because they were very afraid 
of course, partly because they believed in people with credentials like Fauci and Burks. And if people like that say something, quote, it must be true. Of course, we've learned now the era of accepting, you know, people as experts based upon their credentials alone must be over. We have to be yeah. thinking adults and be critical thinkers. But the third reason it was successful is because the media demonized the people who were speaking against the conventional narrative, against the lockdowns and school closures. They were demonized and deemed dangerous, people like me. And there was a creation of the illusion of a consensus that the lockdowns and school closures should be done. And that illusion was done by censorship. Because when you censor the dissenting opinions, a, you prevent any kind of critical thinking because to do critical thinking, you need to hear two sides. But B, you've created this sort of false narrative that, well, everyone's saying that you should do lockdowns and school closures. And everyone was not saying you should do lockdowns and school closures, except when, when the dissenting voices are censored, uh, it those dissenting voices and opinions become invisible as if they didn't exist. In addition, they were targeted... Uh, very heinously uh, as being dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the censorship really uh, was shocking to me, A, because again, I was naive. I didn't understand that's how things worked in this country. But secondly, um, how did the censorship occur? Well, you know, when I got to Washington, at, uh, basically at the beginning of August 2020, I had already been on record giving long interviews, writing the data, uh, and getting visibility about what the facts were about the pandemic. And then when, when I came to Washington, within a couple of weeks, YouTube pulled down a, a video interview of me that I did while I was at Stanford wow. months earlier. Okay, they pulled it down and said it was misinformation or dangerous. Of course, it wasn't. I was stating the data on children that was known. Uh, maybe the data is dangerous to people who don't want the public to know the facts. I mean, that's a different story. Then uh, when I was, uh, as the advisor to the president, my Twitter uh, account was taken down and blocked. Mm. Now, you would think just no matter what I said, that the people should hear what the advisor to the president is saying. Yeah, yeah. We're a free country. We're adults. We're not plants or dogs or animals. We are <laughs> supposed to be able to reason. That's the difference between a human being and, and a non-human being animal. Uh, and But also it's very dangerous, of course, because you're, again, uh, you're, you're creating this illusion, a false narrative that these, uh, these, this data doesn't exist. And the biggest thing, uh, the initial tweet that was pulled down uh, that I said was the data on masks. Because it was known by the CDC data itself, publishing in May of 2020, that viral respiratory infections are not blocked and the wearers of masks are not protected with masks. That was factually known. Uh, and that was from May of 2020. But all the data showed it. That, and I was just giving the data. And it was pulled down. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I don't know. I guess, uh, well, I mean, people wanted to persuade the public by fear and without letting them think for themselves. But the reality was it was very dangerous to pretend that masks worked because you're giving people a false sense of security. People are high risk to die from COVID if they're told, oh, this mask is very protective, which is what Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, said. Then they think they can walk in and, you know, roll around in, in the bed with somebody who's got COVID coughing in their face and they're protected if they have a mask on. And this is simply not true. Uh, and all the data, 100% of all of the studies proves that masks do not work to protect or to stop the spread of this virus. And we knew that from the data on influenza because the size mm. of the influenza virus is essentially the same as the size of the SARS-2 virus. And the size of the virus is smaller than the pores of the surgical mask. Mm. So, I mean, this is just like, 
you have to be an idiot to think that the math worked, frankly. Uh, secondly, uh, the second part of the review of all the data in the Cochrane review that came out earlier this year in 2020, in 2023, I should say. Uh, and I can link that in the show notes for the listeners. Sure. That review was of all the data. It was not of a certain set of data. It was of all the good mm. data on masks. And it said two things. Number one, the masks do not work to stop the spread of this infection. And number two, the N95 masks are the same as surgical masks. Mm. N95 masks do not work. So there's all kinds. Of, I don't. I, I understand. I, actually, uh, this is sort of an interesting uh, anecdote. A good friend of mine who was also a doctor called me up when I was in Washington, said, Scott, I know you want to say the truth, but you shouldn't say the truth about the masks. And I said, well, uh, why? Why shouldn't I say the truth? And he said, because that's the only thing people have to make themselves feel like they have some control uh, and you're going to send them into a panic. And I said, okay, that, that may be true, but the reality is it's dangerous to make them think that the masks work because they don't work. Uh, and so, you know, I feel like, we have to say the truth. We can't have an ethical society if we're uh, structured on the basis of false beliefs. I mean, you know, if you want to put a lucky nickel in your pocket and think that you're protected from COVID, I mean, I'm not going to be a part of that. So, uh, you know, I, I say the truth and I believe people want the truth. And I, I've been speaking all over the country, all over the world, really, and people actually do want the truth. We don't have to pretend like they aren't capable of deciphering false from truth. Give them the information. Well, that's an amazing introduction to this conversation. And there's so many questions I have based on that. But I think based on what you've said, there are really kind of two things that as an American citizen really strike me as, wow, that's absolutely terrifying. Um, first, I think when people talk about, quote unquote, cancel culture, there's kind of this feeling that, oh, I mean, it's an individual issue that, oh, this sucks. There's mean people out there. It sucks for the one person. Um, but kind of what you've pointed to is it it really can, when you're censoring people from getting information, it really can be life or death for people. And so that's a quite frightening dimension of it. Yeah, I mean, I think this, if I could interrupt and say, yeah, 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 I think this, your, your, your point here is extremely important. Number one, the first part of it is censorship is not just shutting down someone from speaking, it's shutting down people from listening. Yeah. Okay, it's shutting down people from hearing the information. This is impactful on everyone. So it's not just the person speaking. And the second part, when you use the term cancel culture, it brings to mind another important point, which is that when people try to destroy you, and I had to get uh, 24-7 police protection when I came back to Stanford in Palo Alto, in my driveway, 24-7 live police wow. uh, for weeks, circling my cul-de-sac, a separate uh, police car. I had massive death threats. I had to install security equipment. I mean, this is insane. Uh, but the point of that isn't me. The point of it is it that kind of really heinous cancel culture uh, stops other people from talking. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's very effective. The cancel culture on campuses, particularly, including particularly Stanford University during this pandemic, stopped many people from speaking the truth. I had people come up to me in person and person and by personal email from Stanford, as well as a lot of places. First of all, I had hundreds of emails from scientists all over the country saying, keep speaking the truth. You're exactly right they cannot speak up because they're afraid for their families and their own jobs. And secondly, that happened at Stanford, including inside the medical school, including inside the infectious disease department of Stanford Medical School, where they tried to circulate a letter defaming me. There were people inside who wrote me and said, I'm, I'm so sorry what's happened, but I cannot speak up because I'm afraid for my job. And so I mean, this is so destructive, so harmful. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that happened in the most heinous regimes, really, of history. We're talking Nazi Germany, the USSR, where people are afraid to speak up uh, because they're they're threatened. And it's very, very dangerous, a very important part about the censorship. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's 
the flip side, the happy side of that is it really can make such a big difference when one person is willing to kind of lead the charge on speaking up. Well, this is this is also very important. I mean, again, you're you're to me, you're hitting on on like the most important points here. And and this is true that the most valuable part about speaking up is yeah. empowering others to speak yeah. up. Because that and I've been told that many times of what I did when I was sort of the only one out there uh, early on, and then eventually a lot of other people, but, you know, myself and Johnny Anides and David Katz in March of 2020 wrote, end the lockdowns, we need to do targeted protection. And then as the months went by, more and more people spoke out because they had somebody else to say that already did it. And so empowering other people, this is very important for stu for students to hear, is that it's very hard to be the uh, sort of the tip of the spear, as they say. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. that's very very difficult. I mean, I I totally empathize with that. But uh, when you speak out, you're empowering others, and I think this is very important for young people to realize and to find like-minded people. And because uh, you know, courage and bravery are in short supply in the United States, particularly, and I think it's a disgrace, but it's also dangerous. We need to take as many people who have some courage and, and uh, you know, uh, really encourage them to speak up. If you'll permit me one kind of small tangent off of that, because it's relevant, I'm so curious. I mean, there's a lot of focus on this with, you know, undergraduate schools like Stanford, recently Harvard and Penn and MIT, um, but relatively little discussion of it at medical schools. Kind of given your field and your expertise, are there trends that we should be worried about there, too? I think it's a, a very, very uh, concerning, I'll say, what's being done in the medical schools. There's a huge amount of uh, focus on non-medical issues, mm. in, and that's being stressed to medical students. The diversity, equity, inclusion, if you want to use that, or what some people call woke, woke uh, policies. Uh, you know, I mean, I think... Everybody knows that healthcare access and outcomes, we want them to be as good as possible for everybody. But uh, you can't have uh, things. I'll, I'll give you an example of what was done. And this is not really the medical school curriculum, but this is being done everywhere. But my, my own mother-in-law is 95 years old and lives in Chicago and uh, couldn't get the vaccine for COVID when it first came out because somebody who was 95 was not considered the top priority. This is insane. Uh, because she, she wasn't living in a, quote, minority community or underserved wow. community. So she flew to Florida to get the vaccine. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you start allocating health care uh, based on race, this is a sickness. Mm and poison, very destructive. And I think uh, we need to be making sure that the people in medical school particularly are learning about diseases and how to treat them, uh, about how to think critically mm -hmm. about the data, about you know conflicts of interest, all these important things. But those things do not include allocating medical care on the basis of race. I mean, that is really, uh, something despicable. And yes, it is being done in, in the United States and it's not receiving anywhere near enough attention. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't forgotten uh, the second kind of big piece that I found really concerning um, because I think, you know, given everything that's happened, there's massive mistrust in science. And w one of the things that really kind of struck me about your answer is I think people view it right now as there's a group of people who trust, quote unquote, the science um, and a group of people who don't. Um, and within that group of people who don't, there's kind of an assumption, well, maybe they don't believe in objective truth at all. To some extent, people really don't know what to believe, don't know who to trust. But in your answer, you were quite quick to say, this is proven. This isn't proven. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to that. I mean, you're someone who was quite brave in speaking out against what people were calling, quote unquote, the science um, when all of that was going down. Um but there definitely are things that the truth exists kind of in these spheres. How do you talk to people about how they can have the ability to sort out fact from fiction and who to trust yeah. and who not to trust? 
Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's first of all, it's very difficult uh, to sort out what's true and what isn't for people. But I think we, you know, uh, before I answer, we have to understand that we're in an era where the expert class failed. The expert class didn't just fail, they were exposed as non-expert. They were exposed as non-critical thinkers and they were exposed as really unethical, immoral in many cases. Um, so the arguments about the pandemic, the lockdowns, there were never factual arguments based on data hmm. uh, that disputed what I and others said about ending the lockdowns. In fact, for, for more than uh, 15 years, it was known the standard pandemic management by uh, the, the review paper is Henderson, uh, 2006. The standard pandemic measure for respiratory infections was known. It was known that lockdowns do not work and they're extremely harmful. That was factually known. So the standard management was not the lockdown. The standard management was what I said, which is targeted, meaning increasing the protection of people who are at high risk and not destroy the other people. Uh, but instead, there was no data, and there were so so many things that were known uh, that were that were simply denied, like the fact that, as we know, for not just decades or hundreds, but thousands of years, if you recover from a viral viral infection, you have longstanding biological protection. This was known. Uh, they they disputed that. It was also known. Uh, like I said, that masks didn't work for viral respiratory infections, and what. What we saw without with by people like Fauci and Burks and Redfield, the head of the CDC and Walensky, was instead of coming forward with data, they may not have known the data, I don't know, but they, they actually intentionally manipulated people, uh, tried to persuade people, including by fear. And I wrote this in my book that Fauci at one point in a, in a task force meeting explicitly said, the quote, the problem is people aren't afraid enough. This is when the country was unhinged with fear. And I made him repeat it because I couldn't believe my ears. And what has happened now since this is you mentioned trust. Now, how do we know trust is trust is is, is reduced from before? Well, we know because of the actual surveys on trust in health agencies, where since 2019, almost two-thirds of the public now says that the FDA and the CDC are only, quote, fair or poor. Whereas that has plummeted more rapidly, that number since 2019 pre-pandemic, than for any other government institution, including the IRS. Wow. So it's very, very low trust in these public health agencies and guidance. Half of America does not even have much confidence in science itself, according to recent surveys. So the trust is, is really damaged. And the trust, uh, it's very important to trust these institutions because we need public health guidance, and, and particularly during emergencies. And, and if, if it's gone, when we really need it, uh, we can't rely on it. And right now I feel that's the situation is that the credibility has been destroyed. Uh, and so what do people do? Well, there's, there's two things. Number one is what the people do. And number two is what we do as a society to restore the trust that we need. What the people need to do is to understand that they need to have a healthy degree of skepticism about things they hear. I mean, that's better than, than not believing that. I mean, that happens to be how I was raised. I was raised to, tr to question authority because you have a brain use it. I mean, and so uh, people don't have the time, uh, frankly, to go and sift through all the studies. But on the other hand, you have to try, you have to, you have to assume responsibility for the decisions for yourself, for your own children. Mm. I mean, they, they, they destroyed children they, by closing schools when it was not, they should have never done that. And uh, there's a long lasting public health damage on young people, particularly. So we need to take some responsibility, but we need to make sure that we read from multiple sources. We need to listen to people who speak and show the data and consider that compared that to people who never show data and just make statements like Dr. Fauci uh, frequently did and, and does still to this day. Um, but I've outlined several specific things that need to be done to restore trust, if I can uh, say them. Please. You know, one, one of them is we need to reconsider and define by law what the words public health emergency mean. Okay, this is a very vague term and it's invoked to mandate all kinds of behaviors. We need to put 
a definition on it, but more importantly, we need to have strict time limits. We can't have it unending. This public health emergency was propagated by President Biden for years, including you know years after the pandemic was over. Uh, and so you know we need to put very short time limits. Okay, there's an emergency, maybe two weeks, but then that's enough time to look at the data and to legislate if we're going to do things uh, like that are very uh, questionable. Uh, the second part is we need to clean house of all the people in these bureaucratic positions. I mean, you have to realize that some of these people, their careers are bureaucrats. Fauci was in the NIH for 38 years. He's not a scientist, he's a bureaucrat. These people last through several presidential administrations because they're skillful at navigating highly politicized environments. It's not because they're necessarily knowledgeable. We need to put term limits in to all these health agency positions, not just at the highest level, but even mid-level, because these people have careers there. They know they will outlast presidential administrations. And what I saw was they're actually running a lot of things. They don't care what the president said, even though the president is supposed to be in charge. We need to eliminate, there's some heinous conflicts of interest that people aren't even aware of. The, there was a recent study that showed that uh, more than $325 million were paid to NIH employees by royalties mm. on drugs that the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA approved and recommended and evaluated. Ugh. I mean, that's that's unconscionable. We, they shouldn't get private income from drugs that they approve or, or are evaluating. That's obvious uh, that that should be illegal. We need to require full transparency of all the FDA, CDC, and NIH discussions with posting on public forums. If they're saying things that shouldn't be said to the public, why? I mean, they work for us. These people in the government are people who are employees of the American people. They're not in charge of the American people. So we, if they're saying things, we want to hear what they're saying. For instance, Eric Rubin, an FDA advisor for children's vaccines said, quote, we're never going to learn how safe the vaccine is in children unless we just give it. Wow. Okay, that, if that if that was he said that in October 2021. Wow. And now that's outrageous. That was never obvious to the public that was said. I mean, we, we can't have a society like that. That's a completely unethical statement. And that needs to be visible. We need to uh, make sure that the centralized funding of science is broken up. Okay, this is something, again, it's sort of esoteric information, but the reality is that every university scientist, every science researcher in the country needs an NIH grant to get promoted and to keep their job. The NIH, therefore, has a tremendous amount of power over individual scientists. It's very rare you'll see a young scientist be willing to speak out against the NIH or against somebody like Dr. Fauci or Dr. Francis Collins, because their whole career depends on the NIH. Secondly, 15 plus medical uh, centers that are academic, university medical centers in the US, more than 15 of them get over $500 million every year in NIH funding. You think they're willing to just jeopardize their funding stream by speaking out against the NIH policies or the CDC? No, they're not. So we need to, the solution isn't to eliminate the funding. We need the funding and often there are good things funded, uh, but we need to decentralize that power. We can't have people have that kind of power over everyone's careers because it basically is chilling on free speech and on the scientific debate itself. We need to also look at the power of the CDC. Okay, the CDC is supposed to be an advisory agency. We need to realize that the governors and even two presidents, they hid behind the CDC. They said, oh, the CDC says this, therefore that's what we'll do. No, the CDC has no power. The CDC, so we need to make it very clear to the public and restate it with executive order that the CDC and other health agencies are strictly advisory. They have no power to set laws or rules or mandates. That's not the job, that's out of control. And then another important topic uh, that I could finish with is the World Health Organization. The United States is the biggest funder of the WHO. The WHO in theory is very important. Okay, they're a, they're a repository of information for the world. They're helpful uh, in theory to uh, help, especially third world countries, 
And in general, uh, it, their mission is very good. The problem is that they've had a bad track record. They've been a disaster in the previous three or four pandemics, very late or giving completely wrong information. Uh, they congratulated China for their extraordinary measures during the COVID pandemic. Yet China was the most barbaric country in lockdowns, imprisoning their own citizens. People were jumping out of buildings uh, trying to escape their own apartment buildings. They couldn't even get their own medication. Uh, they, they put out misinformation on asymptomatic spread. They changed medical terms like herd immunity. This is the WHO. Tedros, the director, said China set the new standard for outbreak response and praised them for transparency, China, even when China was blocking the WHO wow. from looking at the data and the labs. I mean, this is so completely you know, incredible what happened. So it's a corrupt organization. And now we have a Biden administration who has an ambassador to WHO, Hamamoto, who's already promised that we are committed to the new pandemic accord without even seeing the pandemic accord. We haven't seen the final version. She said it's we're committed. And why would we commit it? It's legally binding. And in that document uh, that's been written so far, the WHO defines a public health emergency for other countries. So they can say, you have a public health emergency, therefore you now should be restricting uh, you know, things like movement or, or behaviors, et cetera. I mean, there's no sovereign nation. I can't imagine any free people want to uh, deputize a third party with that kind of power. Yet, that's what we're, we're about to do here. So uh, all these things, a lot of it is transparency, but there's some legislation. Uh, we need to fight back against the censorship and to restore trust. Uh, because, again, without it, we are debilitated as a society that depends on objective information and, and critical thinking. There's a name that's come up in almost every answer that I think we definitely need to chat about. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who is someone who it it feels like I shouldn't be old enough to have witnessed a person go through like all the different stages of public opinion that Anthony Fauci has gone through from when he was the most unifying person in the whole thing right at the beginning, who was in the Trump White House all the time and both sides loved him to now where you get the super extremes of everything is completely his fault or I'm going to buy you know, one of those devotional candles that has his face on it, which they really do sell. Um, I've seen them at stores. Um, so it's sort of uh, it works out very well that this conversation is now because Anthony Fauci is currently testifying before the House of Representatives. And I tried so hard to find information about it, but it's very difficult. It's all kind of behind closed doors. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit kind of from your perspective. Um, maybe you have information about it that I don't or that people don't broadly or what kinds of things we should be looking for coming out of those conversations. Well, uh, as far as I understand that the uh, the congressional hearing, which is behind closed doors, is so far focused on things like uh, funding the gain of function research that was done in Wuhan. And that it is definitely known that the GAO report from June of 2023 of the United States government showed that two million dollars was directly or indirectly given from the NIH, including Fauci and Francis Collins' directions, to Wuhan on coronaviruses. And this was dangerous research that was funded at a time, pre-pandemic, when that research was deemed too dangerous to conduct in the United States. So this is, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but it certainly sounds criminal to me that you uh, give U.S. money to fund research that is deemed too dangerous to, to fund in the United States under official government funding. So that they're going, at, uh, they're asking about that. They're asking about how Fauci insisted and to some extent still seems to that the lab origin was uh, absolutely impossible or highly, highly unlikely that it must have been a natural naturally occurring virus when he said that in early 2021, of course, that was impossible to know that. And in fact, the vast majority of, uh, of information seems to think that it came out of the Wuhan lab, not necessarily intentionally, but it came out of the Wuhan lab. Uh, 
And you have to wonder why would somebody be motivated to control the uh, discussion of the origin of the virus? Perhaps, just perhaps, it was because he was involved in funding uh, the research that may have led to the origin of the coronavirus. So uh, there's a reason for that. Now, instead, what they, and by the way, what I've read is he has said almost 200 times on the first day, the words, I don't remember, to the questions. Okay, which is, uh, I mean, uh, if he doesn't remember, then he's cognitively impaired. Uh, and so he shouldn't have been and should never be in charge of anything like that. And I don't believe, I do not believe he's cognitively impaired. Uh, so uh, now what, what he should be, uh, what he should be asked is, uh, you know, I can go through several questions, but he should be asked about the pandemic management because this, this was the most heinous disaster of public health in the modern history in the United States because his and Deborah Burks, who was the official head of the medical side of the task force, who gave all of the written guidelines to every state, every governor, they got what they wanted. Their advice was lockdowns and school closures and mandates, et cetera. And uh, their lockdowns were implemented throughout almost all the country with some rare exceptions like Governor DeSantis and Governor Nome, uh, who I advised. Uh, and uh, their lockdowns failed. They didn't just fail because there were over a million deaths. They actively destroyed people, particularly the, the poor and children. And again, uh, so why, why, wh what's important about this? Number one, the legacy is the disastrous management. Number two, legacy is a massive destruction of psychological damage on young people. Because as we know, uh, Psychiatric visits by people in high school and teenagers exploded during the lockdowns from the isolation, not from the virus. Uh, drug abuse, overdoses exploded. Self-harm visits to doctors where teenage are putting, teenagers are putting out cigarettes on their skin, slashing their wrists. That exploded because of the isolation, not the virus. This was a man-made decision. So, And that was an obesity crisis where 52% of people in college have a unwanted weight gain that averaged 28 pounds during 2020. That's obesity. When you put on 30 pounds, you, you've made yourself obese. Uh, and so that's a big public health damage. That's the legacy. And the third legacy of Fauci and Burks is this loss of trust that we spoke about. So what has to be done, we need, the first step in restoring trust, frankly, is to apologize and admit error. Okay, everybody who has a serious relationship or a marriage understands that if you apologize, okay, you admit you were wrong, that, that's the first step. He's never going to say he was wrong. None of the public health leaders, none of them, Burks, Fauci, uh, Redfield, Walensky, or all of the talking head university researchers at Stanford and Harvard and everywhere else, they'll never admit they were wrong. Uh, but their advice was used, and their advice killed people. Uh, and so that the public demand for the apology has to be uh, has to be visible because we can't let it happen again. And if we just say, oh, let's move on, let bygones be bygones, these people are still in power. We cannot ever let that happen again without repercussion. I don't believe in putting people in jail for what they did, but I do believe in demanding that they are told in a public forum what they did was wrong. This is the data. You were wrong and admitted. So he should be asked, uh, A, standard pandemic management for, for 15 years, as I mentioned, was that lockdowns don't work and lockdowns are extremely harmful. Did you not know that? Or were you simply lying? Two, isn't it not unethical to shift the burden of a disease to the poor? Because that's what lockdowns did. At the privileged asset, I mean, affluent class, the so-called laptop class, we were ordering in from the DoorDash, Amazon was delivering the goods. And meantime, low-income people were the ones working in the grocery stores, were the ones working in the pharmacies. Uh, there was no vaccine, uh, there was no protection. We shifted the burden of a disease to the poor. Lockdowns did that. And I would ask Fauci, don't you view ethics as part of your role? Because it was completely unethical. Three, it's proven that lockdowns failed by all the studies 
There is no scientifically valid debate that lockdowns did anything but fail. They did not stop the spread. They did not prevent the death. And they destroyed people. And I would ask him, do you not understand the data or simply you will never admit you were grossly wrong? I would ask him that all the studies showed that masks don't work. Uh, why do you keep saying misinformation? Don't you read the studies or do you not simply understand how to use data or are you just lying again? What data did you use to come up with six feet separation? Many countries use three feet, four and a half feet. Right. That, that was obviously random. Uh, there, what was the data? And now why is that important? Not to be vindictive, but to point out when you have a six foot rule, you put restaurants out of business. You put certain businesses out of business. Okay, there was no validity to the six-foot rule. And I would ask them, where's the data? Or did you just make that up off the top of your head? Back in July of 2020, I would ask Fauci, you recommended goggles, that people wear goggles. Okay, nobody talks about that. That was in the news. You could look it up. I, I would say to them, why did you stop saying that? Is it because it was even too embarrassing for you? <laughs> because it's the same pseudoscience that masks work. Anybody who believes masks works, that's like saying the earth is flat, okay? That's like saying goggles should be worn outside. I would ask him, why did you lie about the origin of COVID being definitely not from a lab back in early 2020 when he could not have possibly known that, yet he insisted on it? Was it because Trump said it was from the lab? I would ask why he praised China when it was blocking the transparency. I would ask about the royalty question, what exact royalties did he receive? I would ask why NIH failed to do obvious clinical trials on drugs that were already FDA approved early on. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were taken by billions, billions with a B of people throughout the world. They were known to be safe. They were already FDA approved in humans. Why were those clinical trials not done when they had a mechanism of action, which is what we say in medical science, the mechanism of action indicated they would work. He didn't do those clinical trials. Is it because Trump said those drugs worked? I would ask him that. I would ask him why he keeps saying that vaccines stop the spread of COVID when they're proven not to stop the spread after only a few weeks. And I would ask him, worst possibly of all, why did you recommend injecting healthy children with experimental COVID vaccines when there are known side effects and the side effects are incompletely known. In healthy children, when they have a minuscule risk for any serious illness, that is completely unethical. It breaks all standards of medical ethics, yet he's out there recommending that. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions he should be confronted with, not to make him squirm, but to make this very public because we cannot ever let this kind of unethical conduct of public mm -hmm. health guidance happen again. Uh, and just because I can't resist, there is another figure who's really gone, uh, seen tremendous success talking about health. And you're welcome to skip this if you don't want to talk about like current presidential candidates. But I'm very, very curious what your thoughts are on the success of uh, RFK, um, because there's not much discussion. I mean, he's certainly not going to be one of the two nominees. Uh, but just even as a reflection of the depth of people's mistrust in science and sort of willingness to turn to new sources, I mean, five, six years ago, the idea that someone running like an anti-vax campaign would be such a popular candidate would have been unthinkable. Yes. I, well, I think uh, RFK Jr. is bringing up something extremely important, which touches up on what I was saying, the basic principle, that we have believed people at face value without asking the necessary questions, without saying, demanding, let's see the data. And now that we saw during COVID, there was active suppression of information about side effects. There was active denial that the studies were not done to indicate if these vaccines stopped dying in people with COVID. They, the public never knew that they were just uh, approved on the basis of flimsy data about uh, stopping the infection. He's asking a lot of questions that should be asked. And I think this is very healthy for a society, particularly after we've lived through what, what we've lived through. We cannot have a system where the data is hidden where no one's questioning the data. So I think that's a very, very important, and it, like you're saying, it does bring up uh, 
the lack of trust. But that lack of trust in science and in public health, the people in science and public health brought that on themselves. They did that. Hmm. It wasn't that RFK Jr. did that. They did that by their behavior, by their mandates. Why is it, frankly, that we've given almost 10 billion doses of COVID vaccines worldwide and we still don't have an detailed compilation of all the side effects. It must be that they don't want the they, whoever they are, they don't want the detailed compilation because we still don't know. I mean, think about that. Uh, you know, I would like to also mention somebody else who's running for president, and this is not a, any kind of endorsement or anything, but I'm, I want to bring up that we need people who are in charge of this country who are uh, not afraid hmm. to question authority and my experience, uh, particularly, was with uh, Governor DeSantis. Uh, I was advising Governor DeSantis since sp spring of 2020 when he called me up before I went to the White House, and he wanted to run by some things about the studies on 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 the pandemic. And he constantly said, "Am I right about this? Am I right?" And he was always right. He knew all the data. And I was advising him since spring of 2020, and then I went down to Florida because he said in August of 2020. I want to go around the state and say that we're opening all the schools because the data shows that the children are being destroyed by closing the schools and they are not at serious risk from an illness, a serious illness or death from COVID and neither were the teachers. And so we did that and he opened schools and he got a lot of flack for that. And I think we need leaders who are willing to look at the data, who are smart enough to understand it and who can question uh, the authority without fear. I, uh, a couple of times he said to me, and I don't think this has ever been even said in public, but he said to me, Scott, I'm going to do what's right, even if it costs me politically. I mean, I think we need people like that. And I, I'm not saying he's the only one like that. Other governors did what's right. I think Christy Noem did what's right. She didn't shut down. She said that you cannot declare a business essential by government decree, every business is essential to the people who need that business or to work at that business. So, I mean, we need good leaders. We can't have people who are afraid. Uh, and, you know, uh, Governor DeSantis, also, he, he assembled a paddle of people, including myself, uh, to go through the pandemic response in early 2021. And we did a Q&A live. It was put on YouTube, and then YouTube pulled it down and said it's misinformation. And so Governor DeSantis called me up and said, okay, Scott, now we're going to do another one on the censorship by YouTube. And that's exactly what we need. We need to keep fighting against the censorship. We need people at the top who do what's right, no matter what the cost, politically or otherwise. And we need people with courage. Uh, I said we have a deficit of people with courage in the country. And we also have a deficit of courageous leaders in this mm -hmm. country. We have a, a, almost... I would say the vast majority of governors were very weak. They're they're non they're they're completely incapable of even thinking. Obviously, they're they're grossly incompetent, but they're also very weak in terms of their courage. They weren't brave enough to buck the system to ask other dissenting voices, uh, and I think that's a bad situation. So uh, I, I commend people like DeSantis. Uh, and like RFK Jr., because they're bringing up questions that need to be asked and they're not afraid to ask them. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that. And I definitely want to take the opportunity to also ask you about kind of your current and your upcoming projects, um, because it's very interesting to me, given your background, um, you moved on to beginning the Global Liberty Institute, which kind of at a very surface level seems not as related to kind of your background in medical science and health policy. Specifically, Global Liberty Institute is more kind of business oriented. So can you talk to me a little bit about why you thought this project was so important and what the links are between everything we've been discussing so far about free speech and censorship and health and your current project? Sure. So uh, my full-time job, of course, is still uh, health policy at Stanford's Hoover Institution. But in addition, there's other issues that need to be addressed as we've gone through. And so I uh, am a co-director of something called the Global Liberty Institute, which is an international policy 
initiative. It's a consortium of, of people in business, academics, policymaking. Uh, and the, the, the essential purpose is to restore liberty and the free exchange of ideas. Uh, because, of course, uh, we had a massive human rights violation in the United States and in the world with these uh, mandated lockdowns and other things. Uh, we need to make sure that freedom is not just uh, protected, but restored. We lost freedom in the United States and elsewhere. And I think that's that's very important for people to recognize. And part of that freedom is the free exchange of ideas. And so we at Global Liberty Institute are uh, are very insistent on not just putting forward policies in a variety of uh, areas, but when working with policymakers to restore freedoms and to protect uh, liberty and the free exchange of ideas. But we need to fix um, things like university campuses, and we need mm -hmm. to make sure that we are uh, supplying leadership positions with young people who believe in the importance of freedom. And that means in the private sector, in finance, in journalism, we need to, we need to get young people empowered, but also help their careers. And so that we have people populating private corporate America, governments, uh, the arts and entertainment, sports, every leadership position with people who understand and believe in the importance of freedom and, and the free exchange of ideas. Uh, because basically what we've seen over the past decades is international organizations, including the World Economic Forum, have been populating governments and leadership in corporate uh, world with very anti-freedom agendas. And this has been very destructive to sovereign nations as well as to individuals. The best interests of individuals are not being served uh, by some of these things like this uh, extreme globalist initiatives and agendas uh, on taking away authority of sovereign nations to invoke uh, climate change policies or whatever you want to talk about. And so we need to we need to combat that. We can't sit there and have an elite class take over and rule individuals. This is a free country. It's supposed to be a free world. And uh, we need to uh, make sure that young people are are empowered and, and helped to achieve leadership positions in their career. So we're working quite a bit with what we're calling rising leaders. Uh, our rising leaders programs are being held in the United States and in Europe. Uh, and we are competing with these international organizations like the World Economic Forum, who has their own young leaders program. And they brag about their graduates like Justin Trudeau. Okay, I believe <laughs> Justin Trudeau has acted by his actions completely antithetical to freedom. And he's a dangerous person. And there are many other dangerous people in leadership positions in the United States and elsewhere. We can't let that happen. I have children. We can't leave the uh, the, the country and the world in a worse, worse position than uh, mm -hmm. we inherited it. Uh, so uh, we have rising leaders programs and we're bringing in and making liaisons for these young people who are in their 20s and 30s in careers uh, with very senior established people on Wall Street, uh, in private uh, corporations all over the country and in all private sectors, in government, in policymaking, and last but not least, in the media. Because we've seen how unethical media and journalism has become. And we need to restore journalism and the media back to providing information not to try to influence our opinions. Uh, again, our, 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 our whole freedom, everything we stand for depends on free access to information and uh, journalism is even more important than I ever understood. Uh, I learned the hard way. Uh, <laughs> I learned by lies and complete uh, character assassination uh, that was done to me and others. I'm not the only one. But we can't we can't let that go. We need to fix that. And there are some very, very good people in journalism and the media. And we we want to continue uh, propagating the uh, helping amplifying the careers of the young people who are doing such a great job exposing the truth.
One more question to kind of tie all this together. You know, so my sister is a senior in high school. And so the pandemic started when she was a freshman in high school. So we're about to come up on all the kids who started high school during COVID and experienced, I mean, all four years kind of in and out of lockdowns are about to kind of enter our campuses as freshmen, which have been the hotbed of all kinds of free speech issues. And I don't need to tell you um, about all the issues that they can cause just as undergraduates. So I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, are you kind of concerned or optimistic about what our undergraduate institutions are going to look like um, for the next four years as this kind of unique generation goes through it? And what advice would you give to kids who that has been their high school experience and now they're going to kind of enter these new this new type of institution? Yeah, I mean, this is very important because I think that there's nothing more important than educating our children, and uh, there's nothing more important in the future of the country than the people who are, you know, in the college uh, sort of age and in their 20s and 30s, and that's a big concern of mine. So uh, I think we are seeing, as an observation, a backlash against the poison that's been on university campuses and dominating them for probably decades, the poison of the so-called woke culture we need to reverse that ideological uh, takeover of our universities because if nothing else, uh, we need to teach people in college how to think critically. That's the number one role of a college education and a college professor, think critically. You can learn the information and memorize it and get it from books and online, but you, you, need, to, you need to have the discussions. You need to figure out how to what what's right and what's wrong and have the debates and have the the way to learn critical thinking and you can't do that without hearing opposing views now uh so i am sort of optimistic that we're seeing a backlash and an exposure i mean the behavior during covid of stanford and many other universities was heinous sinful uh really quarantining asymptomatic people, forcing testing, forcing vaccines, or you can't come on campus. This kind of stuff is, I hate to make the, the crude analogy of Nazi Germany, but uh, I don't think it's very different, honestly. It's, it's, it's sinful what was done, and there's been no repercussion to these college administrators for that. On the other hand, we have seen with the uh, Israel-Hamas uh, situation, there's been an exposure of the fraud, of the lack of moral and ethical compass that the leaders of major and so-called elite universities have. And I think we're seeing that uh, maybe that's what it took to get this exposed. So I'm optimistic. I'm also optimistic that uh, from what I'm hearing from some of the conservative, the alternate newspaper at Stanford called the Stanford Review, uh, which is not the main newspaper, the main newspaper is a very embarrassing, very <laughs> poor scholarship uh, newspaper called the Stanford Daily by really students who are who have embarrassed themselves, their parents in the university by the trash they write. But the Stanford Review uh, is very different. And it's uh, I've heard there's a, a an influx of students who want to work there, a dramatic increase. That's good because uh, we need people to appreciate that there are other views and to be involved. And my advice is, number one, get involved with activities of like-minded people uh, or people who believe in free speech, freedom of expression. You don't have to be the, uh, the outlier. It's very difficult, but there are many people the more you speak out or the more you investigate it, the more you realize there's a lot of students who agree with you. And I think you need to you need to trust yourself that you're not alone and figure out who who is actually also there and maybe thinking the same way and get involved in activities like that. Read both sides of things. Try to question what you've been told by your professors. A lot of these people, frankly, are really it's sad what these professors have exposed about themselves. Uh, I don't want to go down that path at this point <laughs> of time. But, uh, but I, what I would say, the bottom line about everything, we have to remember a quote that I love to 
a site from G.K. Chesterton, which is mm. really important to remember, which is that, you know, right is right, even if nobody uh, does it, wrong is wrong, even if everybody's wrong. And uh, you, you need to, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a paradigm of ethics or anything like that. I'm not trying to pretend anything, but I am saying that I know right from wrong. And I think we all do. We all know right from wrong. You can't forget that uh, because people ultimately end up on a very big scale or even on an individual basis. They depend on you. Yeah. Uh, you don't realize as a young person who depends on you, uh, your friends depend on you to speak up, your your family sometimes as your siblings. But also, I think young people fail to realize how much power they have by speaking mm. the truth. The university leadership, they only care about two groups of people. They care about the donors and they care about the students. They cannot take, I've seen it, when the Stanford Review has come out and criticized in very relatively modest levels, leadership of various people at Stanford. These people go crazy. They can't take the heat. The students are very impactful. And if you remember that, you shouldn't be afraid to speak up. You should be emboldened to speak up. Well, thank you so much. And I feel like I should tell the listeners, Scott and I first encountered each other when I was the editor of the Stanford Review. Um, and he did yes. really amazing work for us. Uh, but it's just... Great for me to be able to to have, you know, have you on air plugging this amazing organization that has a really long history and produces not only good work, but also, as you say, really, really great students. And I'm also really excited about their future and the future of GLI and all the work that you're doing, Scott. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fascinating conversation. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Dr. Scott atlas on free speech in the sciences and in the medical sphere. If you want to hear more about Dr. Atlas's experience with this topic, you can check out his book, which is linked in the show notes. It's from 2021, and it's called A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. If you enjoyed this episode, please do like, comment, subscribe, leave us a rating or review. We really appreciate it. You can also find out more about what we do at the Madison Program here on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu. You can sign up for our mailing list. You can also see all of our upcoming events and get recordings of all of our previous events from earlier in the semester and in previous years. Finally, you can keep track of us on social media, on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and cannot wait to see you next time here on Madison's Notes. Mm -hmm.